thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Africa Milan, of course, standing in for Reedy Clubby. If you've had questions that have been puzzling you, that you've been pondering over and have not had any uh, satisfactory answers to, Chris Smith, our naked scientist, of course, is here to answer all of those questions. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. I, I have a question to ask you. I dropped my phone uh, uh, in water. I won't say where. Uh, last week, and everybody means, called in... <laughs> Yes, that's what it means. And everybody was saying rice, rice, rice. And I put it in uh, the rice for two days. Um, It did work for only a total of 45 minutes. Then it gave me a blank screen, so I had to get another phone. Mm -hmm. But what is it about rice that is actually effective in (laughs) taking the water out of that phone? Well, rice is starch, and starch is a sugar molecule. It's a big polymer made of joining lots of sugars together. And as such, it can soak up very large amounts of water because all of those sugar molecules can bind water around them. So basically, it's like putting your phone into something which is a very dry environment, because it is, and so any water in the phone will move into the dry environment because water or anything actually moves from a place where there's lots of it to a place where there's a more even distribution of it just by random chance. So I think that's probably what's going on, Africa. You put your phone into a drier place and the water moves away from it. I don't think rice necessarily is going to be the only way to do it. I think what you could have done is to just put it in a very dry environment that's not too hot. Because the thing that might be tempting to do is to to use a hairdryer or something, but this can actually heat the phone up and damage things because of heat. Whereas if you put it into an environment which is a constant temperature-ish but dry, the water will come out and it hopefully will work again. Most of the time it's a problem with water getting into these things because it does nasty things to the screen if the screen's not sealed. Also, uh, the water can discharge the battery and cause corrosion around the contacts and electrical connections, which uh, is why it tends not to work too well. Better not to use the phone in the toilet in future. (laughs) <laughs> I must try and remember that at four o'clock in the morning. Our first question, Chris, is from Don in rugby. Hello, Don. Chris, um, I'm, I've just been reading a book by Paul Parsons, very interesting, informative book called How to Destroy the Universe and 34 Other Really Interesting Uses of Physics. And in this book, um, it, he mentions the fact that, you know, um, um, uh, physicists have been designing and building ever more powerful microscopes to get to see further down into into our the matter of our world. And it, it came to the point where they have developed the scanning tunneling microscope using kind of um, quantum physics. And there's a statement he makes which really, really bothers me. It says the probe that is, um, is used, the probe doesn't actually make contact with the surface but remains about two atomic widths away. 
the tip of the probe itself is extremely sharp, usually just a single atom thick. How did they make an at, uh, <laughs> a, a probe with a point that fine? Yeah, good question, Don. Uh, so, first of all, how can you see something with a scanning tunneling microscope? How does it actually work? Well, when they're drifting this very tiny point above a surface, you're not actually seeing things the way that you or I would interpret things coming in with light. What this machine is doing is looking at the electrical pattern because atoms have charge around them, have charged particles, electrons around them, and when you bring things close together, the electrons around one thing are going to interact with the electrons around another, the point or probe on the microscope, and this is going to cause a current to flow, and you can measure this and use it to build up a profile of where the charges are on the surface, and you can infer from that what the surface topography or the, co the contour is. Now, when you make these fine tips, what they usually do is to use chemical means to abrade them. So you can t basically use some kind of erosive chemical to slowly digest away the material so that you leave just small numbers of atoms left at the very fine tip. That would, that would probably be the way I'd guess they do it. But if anyone knows better, do please get in touch with us because we love hearing from you. Tweet at Naked Scientists, for example. Exactly, Don. Lovely question. Thank you very much for your call. Mohammed is in Santon. Hello, Mohammed. Hi, Chris. Hi, Africa. My question is, when we record our own voice and when we re replay it, why it sound different to us? Yeah, very good question, Mohammed. Why, why do we sound so weird when we hear ourselves back? You listen to yourself on the radio, as you will, when you download the podcast of this program later, and you'll think, God, do I sound like that? Because I do that all the time. And the reason for this is that when we hear an, a person speaking to us, the sound is coming to us through the air, and sound is a series of vibrations in air molecules, and the vibrations go into your ear holes, they go down to your ear drum, which is a sheet of tissue at the end of your ear hole, and the air molecules bashing into the drum cause the piece of skin to vibrate, and those vibrations are then transmitted through a chain of three small bones, malleosynchus and stapes, into your inner ear, your cochlea, and the vibrations are then picked up by fine cells called hair cells, and they convert the vibrations into electrical signals or pulses that go down nerves into your brain. Now, that's why you hear the world around you. But when you speak yourself, there's another thing going on, which is that you're also making the sound you're hearing. So some of the sound is coming out of your mouth, going into the air, and then going into your ears but also the vibrations, before they even leave your mouth, also make the bones of your skull vibrate. So those sounds are transmitted directly through the bone, also to your inner ear, where they make the hair cells vibrate. So when you're listening to yourself, you're hearing sounds from two sources, the sound coming through the air and the sound coming through your bones. And when you add those two together, you get a slightly different experience to if you just hear the sound coming through the air. So when you play yourself back later, you are only hearing the sound coming through the air, and this means that some of the frequencies will be less represented, they'll be less loud, so you sound different to yourself. In fact, what you actually sound like to everybody else around you is the sound of that recording. So bear that in mind, everybody. And as one of my good friends puts it, the best you ever learn to do when you have to listen to yourself a lot is to tolerate yourself. You never really <laughs> like the sound of your own voice.
Is that true of you, Africa? Do you find that? <laughs> it's very true. In fact, people often tell me that I've got this uh, sort of deep resonating voice, if you like, which I never understand because all I hear in my head is a chipmunk voice. <laughs> well, it sounds very good to me anyway. Thank you very much. Reedy Tabi was singing yesterday, by the way, and everybody has been tweeting and SMSing about that. Cecil of Pineland saying, did Reedy sing yesterday on radio? It sounded like she was giving birth. Cecil, no, don't be nasty. Our next call is from David in Kempton Park. Hello, David. Hi, good morning. Um, I read an article with, uh, where a, couple, a group of scientists were doing experiments to slow down the speed of light by passing it through various mediums. And they eventually got, to, I think sodium was the, the best medium, and they got the speed down to like 38 miles per second or something to that effect. What are the practical implications of doing something like that? Why would they want to slow down the speed of light? Hi, David. It, it sounds really bizarre to think that you can slow down light, but actually this is happening everywhere all the time. Because everyone has in their mind the idea that light travels at a, a constant speed, but then they miss the crucial bit of the definition, which is in any given medium. Because just as sound travels at different speeds in different things, so if you put sound through air, it travels at a very different, slower speed than if you put the sound through, say, metal or water... When light goes from a medium which is thinner or less optically dense into one which is more optically dense, it too changes speed. In fact, if light goes from a vacuum, complete vacuum, into, say, glass, it will slow down a little bit. So depending upon what the chemical environment is, the light will change speeds. And this does have some practical applications. You can slow light down to a walking pace, actually. Scientists have done that with a, a cloud of very cold... I think they were using cesium atoms, but I might be wrong. And... This this means that you can then understand various quantum behaviours and things because you have more time to make the measurements or you can slow things down to a way that makes it easier to manipulate. Um, I think that's the, the main way of looking at it because people are not actually saying if we slow the light down we can do things with it at this stage. They're trying to understand what is actually going on when light interacts with matter or when these sorts of things are going on. And if you can slow light down then you can begin to understand more about it. So the impact that it will have on the spectrum is the impact that it already has because it's happening all the time. Well, if we can understand a lot more about uh, how these things work and how light behaves and that kind of thing, then we can understand a lot more about the world and the universe around us. And inevitably, this means that we'll understand how to make even better devices that make our lives easier. That's the dream anyway. <laughs> Whether it's going to become reality, I don't know. With people like you, Chris, I do, of course. Gail is in Alberton. Hello, Gail. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. How are you? Okay, thanks. I washed my cell phone in my, left it in my gown pocket and washed it in the washing machine for at least 20 seconds before I realized my phone was being washed in the machine. And I did, I took it apart and I put it in a container with rice for a week and it's working 100% and the screen for cracked. For a whole week? Sure. Gail, thank there you, you very much. Imagine imagine being without a phone for a whole week. There are people who can't, you know, exist without their phone for longer than 20 seconds, never mind a whole week. But thank you for that story, Gail. Lucas is in Somerset West with an interesting question. Hello, Lucas. Good morning, Chris. Um, we live on a farm and they recently upgraded the water plant on the farm. And now what happened is the water that we use to bath in or wash our hands with, as soon as it comes into contact just with normal soap, um, two things happen. It turns a, a, cobalt, a cobalt kind of blue, 
And the other thing is it feels it feels kind of slimy. You, you cannot get the soap off your hands. I was just wondering, you know, if, if it's some weird chemical reaction taking place or, or what, why is that? Hello, Lucas. Is, is your water plant going through some kind of softening device? Yes, it is. Yeah, and this is what the, 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 the cause of this is, because when you use soap, soap consists of usually a, a sodium atom which is linked to a long oily chain, a hydrocarbon chain. And when you use the soap, the soap sticks its hydrocarbony chain into the oily bits on, on the dirt that you want to get off and uh. pulls the oil into solution because lots of soap molecules get round one blob of oil and they've got this charged end where the sodium would sit uh, in contact with the water because that likes water and the oily end in contact with the oil because it likes oil and that's how you make these things dissolve and usually it's the sodium atom that sits in there if you have very hard water what happens is that the hardness in water is caused by calcium usually from limestone and uh, I don't know exactly where you are but if you live anywhere near Joburg um, there's huge amounts of dolomitic limestone around there so the water tends to be very hard and that means there's lots of <coughs> calcium in it and when you mix your soap with hard water the calcium takes the sodium away and swaps places with it so you get a calcium sitting there and then two of these oily chains stuck onto the calcium because calcium can link up to two of them and this is much less good at then dissolving things it makes a scummy substance which is why you get lots of scum with um, hard water now when you soften the water because you don't have that calcium there stealing half of the soap a tiny bit of soap goes a really long way. And you might find you have to change your soap behaviour if you've got very soft water now because um, you, you will find the soap very hard to wash off and you don't need very much of it because you haven't got the calcium robbing it. And the bluey stuff is fine particles of, of the soap making these little what are called micelles, these tiny oily blobs in the water, and it scatters light and it scatters blue light really well, making the, the water look a bluish colour. Lucas, lovely question. In fact, there's a very popular um, powder, powdered uh, washing soap that uses blue elements in it too, I suppose, as part of the marketing uh, because people are used to seeing a little bit of blue in their water whenever they, they play with it, uh, that they feel that it might clean a little bit more because it has a bit of blue in it. Uh, lovely question, Lucas. Tammy is in Centurion. Hello, Tammy. Hi, Chris. Um, we have a problem with ants at home. Um, they will be anywhere where there's no food. You can put your handbag down and then the ants will be around it. Um, I just wanted to know what the reason is and what we can do to sort of get rid of them. Hi, Tammy. Well, the, the answer is that ants are always looking for an opportunity. And they lay trails down, which are chemical trails, which include signals saying go this way and other signals saying don't go this way and wherever they go they lay these tr these trails down and they they continuously wander around in the environment and then when they find something which is worth having they then take some of it back to their nest following this trail they've laid down and they release a chemical which tells all of the other ants to follow them and this then sets up a trail to go and retrieve whatever those goodies are so ants are always on the lookout for a choice morsel and if your handbag happens to be put near where they are they will explore it and if they find the remains of last week's lunch in there then they will tell all of their mates and they'll bring their entire colony there to empty your handbag of last week's lunch for you very quickly. 
So the best way to um, get rid of them is not leaving last week's lunch in a handbag very quickly. <laughs> exactly. You just have to make sure there's nothing that would be an ant-sized snack anywhere. So they like sugary things because sugar, they can just soak that up, they, they drink it up, uh, take it back to the nest and then they feed it to uh, their nest mates. So anything they can easily mobilise away, try and avoid putting those things in their path. The Naked Scientist is answering all of your questions on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Numfunda in Auckland Park, we come to your question next. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Lovely SMS coming in to 31567-31702. The Naked Scientist, Waloya. It's like he knows absolutely everything, which he does. Well, at least he's been stumped once or twice in the past. Chris Smith here to answer all of your questions. Chris, our next question is from Numfunda in Auckland Park. Good morning, Numfunda. Hello. Hello, Numfunda. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Okay. No, I wanted to know why do I feel some sort of sensation on my chest whenever my child stays if I left school or when she's got a bruise or some sort of injury. And it's not like, you know, I, I'm feeling, okay, maybe bad that she fell. It's a, a physical sensation that I feel on my chest and it lasts like three seconds and then it goes away. Like even last week, her suit came out and then when I looked at her gum, it's just, you know, the sensation comes every time, you know, when she's not okay. I don't know what it is. Out of interest, I wonder how old is your child? She's 10. I've had it since I've had her. Like, every time she falls, I'll, or maybe she tells me that she fell at school, I'll get that sensation in my chest. And how, how, what is the distance between where you work and where she goes to school, out of interest? Uh, well, I'm in Joburg and she's in KZN, but we're very close. I see her, like, almost every two weeks and stuff like that. All right. Chris, uh, for your purposes, the distance between Joburg and KZN is anything from <laughs> 600 to 800 kilometers. Yeah, it's a long way, isn't it? Um, it is. Well, I, first of all, let's consider the, the issue of if you see someone getting hurt, when you are watching a film on, on telly and you see someone get hit and oh no, someone hits someone in the face and you, you almost find yourself going, ooh, like, and you can almost sense the pain of the person who has had the accident or in a cartoon someone trips over and, and hits their nose against the door or something. There is in the brain a population of cells which are called mirror neurons and we think they're in pretty much every part of, of the brain and what they do is to mirror the activity if you like, of the person who is experiencing something onto your brain. So if you're looking at someone and they look happy, then it mirrors onto or presents to your brain the sensation of happiness. If they look like they're in pain, it presents a pain signal into your brain. And the idea of these cells is that it enables you to put yourself in the shoes of that other person so you can work out how they must be feeling. And this is really important for a social species like us to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes in order to ask, if I do this, what will they think? Because it, it enables us to think several moves ahead in the chess game and work out uh, how our actions will make other people feel or how other people's actions will make us feel. So we do have these populations of cells in our brain which enable us to do that job. They're called mirror neurons. Now, part of what's being described by Nomfundo here is a sort of mirror effect where when an individual experiences some discomfort, you also experience it, which enables you to understand why they're suffering. 
Whether this is manifest over a really long distance, I think that's a different question, and I think there might be an element of coincidence in this. There's certainly no scientific evidence that if you separate two people, uh, say identical twins, people are doing this a lot with because they believe there's some kind of relationship between them. Uh, can one twin think what the other one's thinking or feel what the other one's feeling there's no convincing evidence that that really happens so it might just be that there's an element of coincidence here which is that on occasions when Nomfundo has had this sensation and her daughter has described having something go wrong the two tally together and you think oh there must be something in this and it's actually just a coincidence but there's certainly a physiological underpinning for why we have the ability to experience what other people must be feeling which is what enables us to be empathic and sympathetic to other people Interesting indeed. Amanda is an observatory. Hello, Amanda. Hi. Um, basically, I'm quite stressed at the moment, and whenever I get quite stressed or I have a bit of anxiety, my right eyelid twitches furiously, continuously throughout the day. Um, and this has been going on for just over a week now. Is it something I should be worried about, or is it just kind of something I have to accept that that's what happens when I'm stressed? Hello, Hello, Amanda. Amanda. Chris? I, I know exactly what you mean, and I think there are many, many people who are listening to this going, oh, I've had that, and it is so annoying, because you can't see straight, because you've got this annoying thing twitching away at the edge of your vision, and it, you for distracting. It is a common, common complaint associated with stress. This sort of thing tends to happen when people are anxious about things. It tends to happen when people don't get enough sleep, which, again, makes your body physiologically stressed. It can also be a manifestation of too much coffee, which in itself can make people anxious and have stress. And so you could consider all of those things as possible causes. And so cut down on the coffee or switch to decaf because coffee potentiates the action of adrenaline, making you feel enlivened and wired. That's how it has that wake-up effect because it makes your body think there's more adrenaline there than there is try to get more sleep and also try to cut down on whatever is causing the stress and often knowing that it is not harmful and will go away will often make it go away because you won't worry about it because very often these things become self-fulfilling because you worry about them you think there's something wrong so you worry about it and that puts your stress level up so you worry about it more don't worry about it cut down the coffee it'll probably just go away I think everybody listening is going, oh, yeah, I'm making notes, I'm making notes. Uh, we've, we've watched this in movies, we've seen it in real life, where a spider's venom, for example, is able to kill an insect. Uh, and I believe scientists are able to turn this into an environmentally friendly insecticide. Yeah, nice way to finish, Africa. There's a, a lovely story this week. It's in the journal Plus One, and it's by researchers at the University of Queensland on the east side of Australia, Glenn King and his colleagues. And they've actually been studying uh, an Australian native tarantula. It's a big spider. It's 15 to 16 centimetres across its legs. So a real handful, this one. It's called Selenotypus palmipes. And actually, it's not that harmful. It doesn't hurt humans, but it does have a venom, which is very good at paralysing the insects and other small animals it wants to eat. And so what Glenn King and his colleagues have been doing is asking... If we look in the venom, because venom is a mixture of different chemicals, can we find a chemical in there which will work when an insect eats it? Because most of the time, spiders have sharp fangs because they need to inject the venom, and therefore we regard these venoms as not, not being orally active. If you just eat them, they break down harmlessly in the digestive tract. And they have, by studying the venom of this tarantula, found one particular component, which they call orally active insecticidal peptide 
and this chemical, when an insect eats it, and they've done tests on a cotton pest called cotton bollworm, termites, and they've also looked at mealworms, which are a good um, study species as well, and it's very, very effective and has a potency in the same sort of ballpark as synthetic and non-synthetic um, insecticides which means that you could potentially make this stuff and it's going to be an environmentally friendly way of controlling insects because it's not going to loiter in the soil for long periods of time and uh, there are natural things there that will remove it, unlike synthetic pe pesticides. And also they're saying you could take the gene that encodes this, which they've discovered, and put it into a plant. Then, you know, there might be a chance to... I have no clue where that sound is coming from. I was going to ask Chris whether that, this insecticide could be a good way of getting rid of some of the ants. But thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning. The Naked Scientist, of course, returns next week, Friday, from half past nine until ten with Rudy Tlavi to answer all of your questions. You can go to thenakedscientists.com for more. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.